In the midst of Cold War paranoia, neurophysiologist John C. Lilly sought to understand the nature of the mind, what kinds of threats it can endure, and how it can persevere through extreme adversity. Historian D. Graham Burnett explains how Lilly's initial research included examining the minds of humans and animals in order to better understand the effects of isolation and close contact on the mind. We see work on what gets called chronic contact experiments, where you isolate a, a person and later an animal with a researcher whose job is to kind of build an intimacy relationship, possibly even something like dependency, with a researcher with whom there's cohabitation for the purpose of accessing information or creating a new kind of bond. And then isolation. And isolation involves, as you know, being cut off. Why isolation? People had, um, people had noticed that under conditions of durational isolation, humans and animals undergo real psychic and in some cases even physical change. And one component of Lilly's research involved developing sensory deprivation and isolation conditions linked to the effort to figure out what would happen if, for instance, U.S. submariners or astronauts or those who uh, manned remote sensing stations for the military, how would those folks fare if they suddenly found themselves cut off and isolated for long periods of huh. time? So there was already a research tradition of sensory deprivation. We're talking about putting sleeves on people's hands, um, hoods over their heads and faces, goggles. These kinds of technologies had been used for quite a while. And what would happen is you'd set somebody up in one of these depauperate sensory environments, thinned out, reduced sensory environments for long periods of time. And you wanted to be able to test to see what happened to your folks if you left them like that for hours or potentially even days, since that could be part of a battery of tests for astronauts, pilots, submariners, et cetera. Around the same time, Lily is becoming increasingly interested in the minds of dolphins. Lily was uh, a self-mythologizer, and he himself spent a lot of time talking about his own breakthrough moment. Um, it occurred, as he tells the story again and again, when he was running a set of experiments on dolphin brains using direct electrodes, and there was a kind of a panel switch that the dolphin could hit to turn off a charge that was being delivered to the brain. And Lily, who'd worked for a long time with monkeys, uh, felt that the dolphin learned much, much faster than he, Lily, was expecting how to turn off the charge. And he also came to believe that some of the squeaky phonations that the dolphin in considerable distress was making began as he heard them to emulate human speech in certain ways. So in a literal sense, Lily kind of felt he heard a voice while doing this experimental huh. work. And uh, that began to change everything. I want to say again that that's a story I'm telling you Lily told. Regardless of whether the story Lily told was accurate, he does eventually move away from mapping the brain and using electrodes. Instead, he begins to try to understand consciousness by asking some pretty trippy questions. Lily's work with dolphins and what it's like to be a dolphin, to be in this weightless environment, not to have hands, to be immersed in the ocean, that work was tangled up with his interest in the conditions of the human body, 
in these darkened, immersive mm. flotation environments. Mm. Uh, he was thinking his way toward the mind brain of the dolphin, but he was fascinated by what happened to the human mind brain when it was placed under comparable conditions. So I don't know if our producer told you, but uh, I floated for 90 minutes. It was a kind of plastic tank, looked very modern to me. What did the original flotation tanks look like? The original flotation tanks did not look like the sort of sexy California pod environment that you probably experienced in your float. Well, it looked sexy until I got into it. <laughs> the original tanks, because they were produced in sort of Cold War bioscience research facilities, were a little creepy, scary looking, honestly. I mean, imagine putting a kind of hood on that was attached to a respirator and having your kind of body uh, fully suspended almost in a a fetal position inside a cement tank of regulated temperature-controlled water, soundproofed box. Wow. Yeah, that does sound scary. I mean, we have to remind ourselves that while now we think of flotation tanks as, again, sort of new age healing spaces, this technology comes out of a line of Cold War research that was tangled up with really creepy research enterprises, like, you know, the kind of work of MKUltra, the sort of experimental skunk works of a set of pretty vicious Cold War spooks yeah. who were willing to do some really uh, icky things to each other. And the kinds of icky things that they did was put people in little boxes for long periods of time until they went stark raving mad. <laughs> and flotation tanks um, have their birth at the edges of that sort of research, um, not out of the work of like Esalen Institute, feel good meditation. Uh, so how do we get from point A to point B? That's a great question. And in fact, I would argue that John Lilly is a big part of that story because across the watershed of the 1960s, Lilly himself walks across from being a slightly scarifying Cold War biomedical mind-brain researcher with ties to the intelligence apparatus, to being a tuned in, turned on, dropped out guy wearing jumpsuits and headed west to Esalen to conduct sort of mindfulness-oriented consciousness-rising type experiences. By the time he's headed west in the mid-60s, he's increasingly focused on the idea that whales and dolphins are possibly kind of peace-loving, hyper-musical, master intelligences that have evolved without hands, so they're incapable of sort of manipulating their environments, so they're kind of into sort of just being men. That's far out. Correct. And the tanks go with him, too. That is the same tanks that were once upon a time <laughs> part of slightly creepy tests of the psychic robustness of potential military recruits 
go with Lily when he opens up his dolphin research lab in the Caribbean, because he increasingly thinks maybe floating in such tanks can help him think his way into the life form of an aquatic mammal. What you're describing, Graham, uh, is quite different than the traditional uh, objective scientific approach of being outside of one's subject and gazing at it, quote, objectively. Mm. Was Lily aware of that? And what, did, did, he, did he invert that whole process of looking inside himself in many ways uh, consciously? Oh, Brian, I mean, here you put your finger on what I literally take to be, you know, one of the very most interesting questions that can be asked of intellectual history and in a sense of epistemology of like a theory of knowledge. So in essence, you're asking me, did something change from Lily standing outside of his scientific object and trying to understand it from the outside objectively? to Lily sort of trying to understand his object by um, converging with it, casting his soul in its direction, inhabiting it in a kind of, what one might almost say, kind of an anthropological sense, ethnographic knowledge. So I think that question of the difference between knowledge at a distance and knowledge that closes the gap is just about the most interesting question we've got. And where Lily's concerned, my short answer is yes with a capital Y. At the same time, I think that development in his own thought has to be linked to a wider transformation in how we think about knowledge across the 50s and into the 70s, where... Uh, distance begins to fail in new ways, and there is a hunger for closing of the gap. And while, admittedly, Lily never figures out how to totally close the gap, Burnett says Lily's efforts are still remarkable. Lily and the researchers like him were extraordinarily courageous and slightly frightening spelunkers like cave divers into consciousness. They were genuinely brave and a little masochistic slash sadistic in their fascination with deep diving into the brain, their own and the brains of others. And so I feel Lily's work with the dolphins, his work in flotation tanks, this work all came out of his deep, deep driving fearlessness to get inside his brain and other brains. It seems counterintuitive, but Lily thought that only through intense solitude could we fully connect with others. And for Graham Burnett, that is an essential realization for us to ponder even today. I believe very strongly that the kind of integrity of the kind of conditions for interiority in a human subject have come under new pressure over the last 10 to 15 years as a result of changes in our kind of media and mediated universe. So a sense of what it is 
simply to be inside one's own mind, I would argue, is a really infungible condition of possibility for political subjectivity, for a sense of agency, responsibility, identity, self-sameness. So the reason the theme of solitude is so crucial now is that those conditions for the for the simple being inside oneself and with oneself are changing very rapidly and it is more difficult than ever to build that habit and to preserve that habitus D. Graham Burnett is a professor of history at Princeton University and author of The Sounding of the Whale, Science and Cetaceans in the 20th Century. <laughs> 